Well, hello, Todd. Good morning. Good morning. We slept the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Oh, I liked that. Is that part of your audition? It, no, it's not. It just it's just not belting this morning. Okay, yeah, no, that's probably good. You got to save your voice because you have an yeah. audition tomorrow, right? I've got a I've got to record an audition tomorrow for Young Frankenstein. So oh, which fun. are you going to be Young Frankenstein? Yes. Oh, Stein, really? Yeah, the scientist. Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, yeah. I hope. I mean, well, I don't know if I'm going to be. I know. I know. I'm just for. saying, which part are you going after? But break a leg. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So that's all. I'm I'm learning this really fast patter song from it. It's it's called the Brain. It's very fast. Oh. Yeah. But that's all I'm working on, and uh, and working on this cup of coffee. That's yeah. All. Well, you know, I I'm very close. I've got, I've reached a level of exhaustion lately that I think I might even dabble with some caffeine. I saw you were playing, what's that game? Cornhole? Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah. With the kids yesterday. Yeah. yeah. I took the kid. Well, so we, we, we recorded a podcast yesterday. It was a a double weekend, which is always a little bit challenging, but you know, the kids have to be, and I also had the kids this weekend. So it was a lot of juggling logistics, but we went to this place called Container Bar, which to be honest, I did not have a fabulous experience. If you're listening, owners of Container Bar, (laughs) the lady at the pizza truck was very rude, but, and so we left after that, but this is my, my review because like, I'm too much of a chicken to do it on like the actual internet. Let's do it on a podcast. (laughs) They will never listen to. We we threw some bags around, had, you know, that was a nice little bit of unwinding, a bit of a break from all of this. And, but it was, you know, this has been a really cool weekend of people to interview because we had Peter on, Dr. Kalivas on and Mm That I think that was like very mentally stimulating in a lot of ways, <laughs> kind yeah. of mind blowing. And then to prepare for this interview that we had today, I mean, it's my own dad. So like that, that's its own other thing. Your dad is such a rock star. I mean, for those of you, you're going to learn so much about this man in this interview. And it's it's fascinating what he was able to do. And in regards to what his contributions were in as a lawyer in fighting the tobacco companies mm-hmm. and ultimately receiving one of the largest, if not the uh, largest, the, the largest, yeah, largest class action suit um, with, with that, uh, yeah. was, it was, uh, the settlement was $240 billion. Yes. So he, so he is really kind of responsible for everybody knowing how dangerous cigarettes really are because back in the day, there were no regulations on that and they were basically just telling people that cigarettes were actually healthy for yeah, you. No, I, th- I think a big so. thing too that we, you, that we, we don't talk about enough and I really want to impart on everybody that there was a massive initiative by the tobacco companies to really get kids addicted to cigarettes. You said the camel, right? The, the cam- camel, like Joe was- camel was created to get people like to get children hooked on cigarettes because they knew that was the, the age to get them. And, and, you know, we, we touched on it a little bit in this interview, but like, you know, that's just evil. Like, this is not, I, I don't, can't imagine. I don't support I that Im- at I, all. Not, not at all. Can you, what would you do if you found is it your, your daughter smoking a cigarette? Um, oh my God. I don't <laughs> I couldn't even imagine. First of all, I'd be like, how did you, uh, you know, where'd you get she's, the money? She's six. Yeah, she's six. It would have been take a lot of effort for this to happen. But um, no, I'd be pretty, uh, pretty upset, especially, I mean, just the fact though, that they're literally, you know, I don't want to get too much into it we, because we got to get into the interview. But right. I just, I think that it's, it's a little bit, I think he, my dad deserves 
and and everybody that participated in in these lawsuits a round a huge round of applause they didn't necessarily get and that's what I asked about it in the interview but they didn't get the you know stamp of guilty that they really really wanted but they got that settlement and that it was something that was enough to show the tobacco companies that like yeah we're on to you we don't like it it's not okay exactly, and and exactly. so i thought this was a really awesome interview just being my dad it was it was one thing but another like a whole new different level of appreciation did you see him a little differently today because I, mean, I mean you were interviewing him almost like a, a you know like he's a just a, a normal human yeah so. i mean i think i definitely every time that i hear because he's so like you, you said this off air but that he's kind of a man of of many words but few words at the same time like where mm-hmm. he can talk about a topic for a while but he is he's very he's kind of stoic he he keeps to himself mm-hmm. a little bit. And so every time it's like, he'll just, I remember a few weeks ago or maybe this now with COVID, I don't even know t- how time works, but months ago he mentioned, you know, we were talking about the insider and he was like, Oh yeah, no, I, I actually was the, the handler of that guy. And I was like, what? Like that was a, a revelation. He, I'd never heard that. So this is every time he kind of says something that I, he is downplays <laughs> everything that he's done in his life so much. So that was a big goal of mine with this interview was to to put him on the stage that he deserves to be on and and it's to incredible. get the recognition that he deserves. And we didn't even get to get into how much charitable, I mean, we did to an extent, but the American Lung Association, I'm dancing with the stars. And the reason I'm doing that is because of him. I mean, he was the right. one that did it first. Well, can you tell people about him? Yes, you- I'm going to give a little quick intro about my dad. So his name is Charles Patrick, and he is a distinguished litigator who has played integral roles in some of the most significant public health litigation in American history, including state tobacco cases that led to the historic National Master Settlement of over $200 billion. He is a founding member of the firm Rogers Patrick Westbrook & Brickman, And in all, Patrick has tried more than 50 individual asbestos cases and four mass asbestos consolidations. Patrick and his wife also own Patrick Properties, a hospitality company that owns and operates several Charleston area special event venues, including the American Theater, the William Aiken House, and Lowndes Grove. And the company has been credited with jumpstarting redevelopment along Upper King Street in downtown Charleston and received the National Historic Preservation Award. So without further ado, introducing my dad. Charles Patrick. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome, Charles Patrick, attorney, dad, philanthropist, amazing man, all around. So excited to have you on the program. Thank you. You're so nice. Um, How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I've got a little bit of a cold, so let me know if you can't hear me or not understand me because I'm a little congested, but I'm, I'm good. I'm, everything's good. Well, I am too. I'm a little congested too, so Todd's the one that's going to take the stage on this one as far as sound, sound the best. <laughs> I'll try. I'll try. Well, we're so excited to have you. I guess we're just going to jump right into the, to the questions. So can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you eventually made your way to Charleston, South Carolina? Well, I grew up in a little town, Jonesville, South Carolina, which is in the upstate between Union and Spartanburg. And I spent my youth there until I left 
and then went to Furman University to college and my, met Celeste, my wife. And after we graduated, or at least I graduated from college, we got married. I went to law school. She ultimately went to medical school in Charleston at the medical university, and I joined her in Charleston after I graduated from law school. Y'all got married at 20 and 21, right? We were 21 years old, and yeah, it was 1976 when we got married. How many years is that now? I'm trying to do math. June, I just looked at this the other day, you know, just trying to figure out what our wedding anniversary is going to be. It's 40, it'll be 46 years in June. Well, June wow. the congratulations. And that's, that is like less than a month away. Yeah. What, and- what, what would you say the secret is? You know, I'm not sure what the secret is. It's just hanging in there, being nice to each other, you know, selective having good hearing. children. Aww. Yeah, having selective, <laughs> having, you know, having great kids. Yes, that is know, the key. Two most wonderful children that, that could be putting up with each other. Yeah, that uh, we've, we've, we've done well that way. Just Just being nice to each other. Yeah. Well, that's good. I think putting that's a good philosophy. Putting up with each other. Yeah, putting up. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, you're both pretty easygoing people, I'd say. I mean, maybe I'm biased, but as your child, you think that I would probably be one of the, the harsher critics. And I'd say that you two are pretty easy to get along with in general. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're pretty easy to get along with. I guess the biggest controversy we would have is something like she needs to leave the kitchen and, and not do the dishes. Yeah. Please don't. Do yeah. Doing the dishes yeah. during our podcast, yeah. which exactly. you, know, <laughs> you may hear about afterwards. So I my apologies to that. So, I mean, you, you kind of touched on Jonesville. Oh, Jonesville, how I remember the, my parents would drop me off in Jonesville for about a week every summer. And let me tell you, a thrilling, thrilling place to be. How, what was the population? Like 3,000? <laughs> well, <laughs> when, I, when I grew up in Jonesville, it was like 2,300 people. And now it's down to like 500. Oh, it's down, I mean, it, down it, it to is, 500. It is, it is. Yeah. And let's just say that I did a lot but of yeah, when I left, everybody left. Yeah, that's <laughs> you were the cool one. And so then they dropped me off there, abandoned me. And so I spent a lot of time rollerblading and putting pennies on on train tracks, which I learned later was not a nice thing to do. But in general, speaking of Jonesville, how do you feel like growing up there and, and your parents in general kind of influenced who you are today? Well, it was an interesting experience being in Jonesville because, you know, it was, I don't know how to describe it. It was like I was not, so my family, you know, my my mother and father came from outside of Charlotte and they moved, my my father moved to Jonesville to get a job nearby with a, a mining company. And we were sort of in a different environment. I mean, we came from like Waxhaw, which was the uh, in, in North Carolina, a suburb of Charlotte. And, you know, my all of my relatives, my they were all teachers. They were superintendents. We had one superintendent of the schools, just sort of a different type of element of society. Moving into Jonesville, which was, you know, basically a mill town. So not, not everybody's wonderful in Jonesville. I'm not, I'm not yeah. you know, casting as We are not disparaging Jonesville at this no, moment. I'm not disparaging <laughs> it. It was just a little bit different. And I was perceived to be different 
and the family was a little bit different. I guess a little bit more, a little bit more educated, maybe uh, a little bit more thoughtful. I don't know how to describe Metropolitan. it. You were the big city. Yeah. You, know, you came from Waxhaw. Yeah, you were the so. big city <laughs> big family. City. Big city, I, yeah. I can't even imagine um, Pactor being a, Pactor is the name that we call my grandmother, my dad's mom. So if anybody gets confused by that, it's, it's, uh, that's her, her nickname. Yeah. But I can't imagine Pactor being considered super metropolitan at that time. Well, more, I don't know how to describe, maybe patrician. Yeah. That's a little bit more elegant, more refined, more. She was the consummate person who could, she had tea parties and with the women of the church. And she was always very polite, reserved, wonderful person but just not what you would expect to find in Jonesville. Let's say that. Do you find that, that like what were kind of some of the takeaways though from your parents? And I know that your, your father was who I passed away when I was about three years old from lung and, and throat cancer. What were kind of some of the lessons that you feel like you kind of learned from them? Oh, well, you know, my dad always emphasized that I should get a, Education, because he wasn't educated. He 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 never made it past the eighth grade. He did well in life. I mean, he was uh, he was very well read, but he emphasized that you really need to go to college and to get the most education you can get to succeed in life. And so I got that from him. He worked all the time. He was constantly working. My mother, on the other hand, she adored me. And she was the same way. She wanted to make sure that I had the best education that I could possibly get. And just realized that that was, you know, the key to success. She was very loving. As you know, my father passed away when you were young, but mom lived to a ripe old age of 96. So she was, she was a wonderful woman. She was funny. I so thought. you talk about ed- education. Did you, so you, you went to Furman, you met right. Dr. Patrick, Dr. Celeste Patrick. Right. And how did you then get involved with Ness Motley, which I should say is Motley, Lodehart, Richardson and oh. Poole. Was it Lodehold? I, I can't this, see. I mean, it's I, had many different names. So this is just. gone through many different iterations. Okay. So don't worry about that. Was it straight <clears throat> out of law school? And, um, so, and you requested okay. to be in Charleston, right? Okay, well, this this is before I requested to be in Charleston. This I was in law school, and my first job in law school was being okay. My father in law, uh, Celeste's father, was worked with a dredging company, so I got a job as a deckhand on a dredge in building the nuclear power plant in Jenkinsville, South Carolina, the one that collapsed. Remember the one that collapsed and it caused all this controversy a couple of years ago? Okay, so I was involved. I was building the cooling pond for that. The The point of my story when I say this is because that was the worst job that I ever had in my life. It was, it was, it was, it was dirty, it was nasty, it was hot, and that was my first year in law school. And I, after I got done with that, I, I said, I'm never doing this again. So I'm going to do really well in law school. I'm going to do the best I can. So I wanted to get a legal job. So I started asking around. And a friend of mine, Brew Haygood, who is still a lawyer here in Charleston, who is from Barnwell, said, 
you know that Terry Richardson and Ron Motley need some work done. They would need some memoranda to be written. And I said, fine. So I met up with Terry and I met up with Ron. I first started working with Terry, but then realized that Ron was, of the two, the, had the most interesting ideas and we gravitated to each other. So I would, I was living in Columbia at the time at law school, but I would drive down to Barnwell, which is about an hour away and work and write memoranda and look at documents and just basically assist in what at that time was basically asbestos litigation because they, those two started off with the first asbestos lawsuits in the United States. So that's where I, that's where I got started. That was my first, actually my second year of law school. Okay. So I didn't realize you started with them even before you graduated. That's, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was, I started off with them. We actually, I started recruiting law clerks for them uh, in law school. We had a number of students who would work for them, write memos and, we had Tom Rogers that did some, Wade Cleveland. I don't know if you know Wade. We had a number of people that were students that generated memos and things like that uh, for the asbestos cases. That's kind of crazy because then all of those people ended up ultimately kind of joining Ness Motley as well. So it was like a feeder. They did. They did. Michael Brickman was, Michael did some work for the firm. There were others, and they all, you know, they did. They joined the firm. So, so when you joined, though, and ultimately graduated, joined, like, what were your feelings about practicing law in general? Like, at the time, they were suing the asbestos companies. Was that an area that you were already interested in, or was it something that kind of... No, I was very, I was very interested. That was, like, the job I really wanted to have. So when I got out of law school, I first clerked for a judge like Charlie clerked for your brother, clerked for a judge. I clerked for a state court judge for a year. And that was that was interesting. But when I left the clerkship, you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And at that point, Ron and, and Terry offered me a job. And Terry encouraged me to move to Barnwell, which is, you know, an hour and a half away in the, in the hinterlands of South Carolina. And I said, I can't, you know, I can't do that. You know, Celeste is a medical school. I got to be in Charleston. And Ron said, you just work here in Charleston. You know, you, you just will. We'll, he said, I'm going to be down there sometime soon. You just open up an office. So that's what I did. I went and hung up a shingle actually in Michael Brickman's uh, father's office, third floor of his office on Broad Street. And that was our very first office. The problem was it was third floor. It was a long way up, long, lots of steps, no elevator. And all of our clients, you know, had lung disease because they were victims of asbestos disease. So they couldn't walk up the steps. So we had to go to, we had to go to plan B. So we found another office, which was in courthouse square, right around where the, the county courthouse is now. It was eight courthouse square, and we had an office there, and that really was our first office for first working office for 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 Ness Motley. Or at that point, it was called Blot and Fails. Okay, I never knew that. I never yeah, knew that, that, is, that history. That is such a crazy like winding it road. Compl- it's very complicated. And I had yeah. no idea that you were like a part of that <laughs> at all. So that's really cool. That's awesome. 
And so, I mean, I guess like at that time, this, this whole time you're doing asbestos, right? Which is, as we know. All asbestos litigation, right. Yeah. And so that in itself, for everybody else out there, you, you were doing like practicing tort law. So can you explain right. what tort law is and, and what exactly a class action lawsuit is? And if it is kind of the same at that time or if it's like a different well, well, tort law is just a wrong, a wrong done to another. So if you make a product that injures somebody and you don't warn that it has a, you know, that it's going to injure you or it has some kind of toxic effect or it can cause you to have injury as a result, that's tort. You sue them in court. I mean, that's, that's, that's tort law. It's, you know, it's as simple as like a car accident. That's a, that's a tort itself. You know, you run into somebody, you cause somebody else to have damage. Or in the case of asbestos, you make a product that contains asbestos, which causes cancer or causes lung disease, and you don't warn about it and you don't tell people about it. That's a tort. So, and a class action is just a multiple of those cases. So with asbestos, you, you, you don't injure just one person because you've got multiple products out there being used by people. It injures thousands of people. So you consolidate those cases into a big consolidation or a class action. And that's what a class action is. Just a multiple number of torts. And was that, and that, and that was, was that used very often at that, that point in time before the asbestos and everything? And it seems like it was, uh, it was just, it was just class actions were used, but they weren't used as often as it happened with asbestos. Yeah. And it's very complicated legally, and we don't really need to get into the details. They went up to the Supreme Court of the United States as to whether or not asbestos cases could be consolidated into a huge class action. And the Supreme Court said no. But what happened was you would just join these cases into, they would just be tried all at the same time. They wouldn't be part of a class action, but they'd be tried all at the same time. So the effect was the same. It's just the, the nomenclature, the the legal definition was not technically of a class action. Okay. So you obviously did a lot of this the asbestos work, which was amazing. And we all, I think, of a certain age, remember all the commercials that's like, have you been affected? Do you have mesothelioma? So like that was, you know, a big part of what you were doing. But as a lawyer, you're known most notably for your work you suing tobacco companies. And just for every all of our listeners out there, we want to make it very clear because some people might not remember when this was all going on. But for for those that don't know, during the 80s and 90s and, and some even today, there were these very large cases against the tobacco companies for basically knowing how addictive and deadly cigarettes were and their attempts to cover that up. And and they were long and 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 intense and ultimately hit the companies pretty hard. But, you know, we'll, we'll get more into how that, that happened, but how did you ultimately get involved with suing tobacco companies since not every lawyer at Ness Motley ended up being involved and, and what were your thoughts going into it? Okay. Well, this sort of grew out of asbestos litigation. So I joined what was Ness Motley, Blotton Fails then to become Ness Motley in like 1980. And so I did asbestos litigation for the first probably 10 years until about 1990. And I continued to do asbestos cases after that. 
But as a result of the asbestos cases, we had a lot of asbestos cancers. We had a lot of cancer cases, people, you know, dying of cancer, lung cancer. And 80 to 90% of those cases, those people would have been also smoking cigarettes. And smoking cigarettes and asbestos is, is, is a doubling experience. If you smoke and you work with asbestos or breathe with asbestos, your chances of getting lung cancer are multiplied thousands of times. It's just like you know, the, the, the two have a multiplicative effect. So, but I also, because of that, you know, with the defense lawyers on the other side in, in the asbestos litigation, they would always blame cigarette smoking for all of the cases that we had. So it became abundantly clear to me that cigarette smoking was a really bad thing and it was causing a lot of disease and killing a lot of people. And both Ron and I learned a lot through the asbestos litigation about how bad cigarette smoking was. And so Ron, basically, we're talking about 1990 or so, had conquered the asbestos industry. They had all declared bankruptcy and we were all doing very well suing asbestos companies. But he decided that the one industry that ought to be taken on was the tobacco tobacco companies or the tobacco industry. So remember in 1990, Laura, you may remember that we would go down to Hilton Head every August to the trial lawyers convention and we would play in the pool and, you know, get together and socialize. Ron would take his boat down there and we would get on the boat and just sort of strategize as to what our next, you know, lawsuit would be. And and that's where you were that whole time. That's right. I was <laughs> on the boat while you were in the pool yeah. at the Hyatt on Hilton Head with Charlie. We were on the boat and Ron got us all together and said, guys, for our next project, I want to see the tobacco industry. I want to see the tobacco companies. And everybody said, what? Nobody's ever prevailed. No one had ever won a tobacco lawsuit. Ever. Ever. No one. Ever. 500, I don't know how many thousands. Yeah, there were a lot. Sued the tobacco, sued tobacco companies that nobody had won a case. He said, I'm going to sue the tobacco companies. And we said, okay. We just sort of humored him. We said, fine. I think he actually asked us to write it down on a piece of paper and sign it. This is in uh, 1990, as I recall. On his boat, his, at that point, little boat, not like his yacht that he was later. Oh, okay. Little, so we all signed off on it. And so we said, okay, maybe we'll do this. Is he really serious? So, yeah, we didn't believe it. And we didn't really want to do it because we knew that that was not going to be a good thing because everybody else had lost. So we just sort of sat on it for a while until, and sort of segue into this, until I was at an as big asbestos trial in Pascagoula, Mississippi in 1993. And I got dragged into this which was a, like a nine-month-long trial. I actually got a, an apartment, lived with Michael Brickman in Pascagoula, Mississippi, and Ron was there. And in the course of that trial, we talked about suing tobacco companies. Our, our co-counsel was a guy by the name of Richard Scruggs, Dickie Scruggs. Dickie Scruggs. Dickie Scruggs. And 
Dicky said, "You know, for, I'm sorry I, for, the, for, the, for the listeners. They're hearing Bubba and Dicky, and all, this is a very this is very Southern culture for everybody listening. That's not from South Carolina. These are normal names. <laughs> These are normal names, yeah, especially in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Yeah, exactly. So, Dicky Scruggs, uh, <laughs> Richard. He he, and, and like after after the day in court with as best the asbestos cases, he wanted to talk about." how we could sue the tobacco companies. And he and Ron were all the same mind that they really both wanted to sue tobacco companies because so many of the asbestos cases involved cigarette smoking. So he had a friend, Mike Lewis, also from, from Mississippi, who had, had a, an idea. He said, what if the state of Mississippi uh, sues the tobacco companies for all the damages that were caused to the state? The state has to pay for medical treatment, for somebody who gets cancer, through Medicare, Medicaid, whatever the state has responsibility for, the state sues to get that money back from the tobacco companies. And the reason why previous cases against the tobacco companies had not been successful, it was brought, they were brought on behalf of, the, of an individual smoker. And the individual smoker had a choice to make. They, they, he chose, he or she chose to to smoke cigarettes. So that was sort of like a contributory negligence. That was his assumption of the risk. And those cases would, where the juries would say, oh, that's your own fault because you started smoking cigarettes. That was your choice to make. But if the state were to sue, the state never made a choice to, to smoke. They just have to pay for the consequential damages from smoking. And so the state can come in and say, Tobacco companies, you're responsible for all this. Pay up because that's your harm that you've caused. So that was the theory. So we started developing that line of thought and to sue the tobacco companies on that theory. So we worked on that for the next several months and ultimately filed a, a case against the tobacco company. Could you explain to everybody like a little bit about the master tobacco settlement for the people that don't know and how that came about and what the ultimate award was and how it basically changed the law? Well, that was the, the, the master settlement agreement was a result of the years of tobacco litigation. And what I was just referring to was the very beginning of it. In terms of litigation, in terms of the timing of litigation, tobacco, the tobacco cases resolved relatively quickly, five or six years after we first filed a case. So so back in Mississippi, um, we had Dickie Scruggs, Ron Motley, and Dickie's friend who he grew up with and had become attorney general for the state of Mississippi, Mike Moore, was Dickie's, one of Dickie's best friends. And he went to Mike and said, Mike, General Moore, can you, what would you, what do you think about bringing a lawsuit on behalf of the state of Mississippi against the tobacco companies? He said, well, that's, that's, that's pretty outstanding. That's, that's going to be a big, that's going to be a big lawsuit. I'm just a little attorney general yeah. in the state of Mississippi suing a billion dollar industry. But, you know, it sounds fascinating. So we met with we met with him, and you know Ron just loved this idea. So he was off to a conference. He was in Canada at a, a trial lawyer seminar, 
and he wasn't supposed to talk about this because this is all top secret. But at this conference, he he just sort of let let the cat out of the bag and started talking about how he's going to sue the tobacco companies in front of a bunch of trial lawyers. Uh, so these trial lawyers thought, what a great idea. Oh, this gosh. is a great idea. So they go back, and one goes back to Florida and says, Fred Levin, he goes back to Florida and he says, this is a great idea. I'm going to sue the tobacco companies. And so he he decides that he's going to file this lawsuit. Well, this gets out, and it makes Mike more furious because he was going to be the first person to sue, first attorney general to sue the tobacco companies. He should <laughs> well, have. it wasn't he Mike's fault. It was, ne- it was Ron Motley's fault. But as we're saying, it actually, it actually turned out to be the best thing that ever happened because then you have the little state of Mississippi with the big state of Florida now teaming up to sue the tobacco companies together. So I can't remember if if Florida or Mississippi filed first, but they basically filed basically at the same time. So this was a huge, it was cataclysmic. You're in Mississippi, you've got Florida suing the tobacco companies, and then Texas came not long after. And then one state after state began to sue the tobacco companies. And this was in the like 1994 time frame. So, and then Massachusetts and Minnesota, California. I mean, there were a number of states started suing the tobacco companies to the point where the tobacco companies were faced with all these multiple lawsuits by all these states that it was, even for the tobacco companies, you know, overwhelming for them. And they ended up ultimately combining together to defend themselves, right? And they were known as the majors. Yeah. Well, you had the major, you know, you had, you know, R.J. Reynolds, you had uh, Philip Morris. Philip Morris, obviously the biggest company out there, but we sued them and Brown and Williamson. And it turned out Brown and Williamson was the company that ended up, and maybe because they were complacent about how they dealt with their documents and their, the people that worked for them, but most of the whistleblowers and the damning documents that came from the companies came out of Brown and Williamson. So when we first, this is, when we got done with this asbestos trial in, in Pascagoula in 1993, I spent some time, Ron said, Charles, why don't you like research this thing about suing the tobacco company, see what you can come up with. So I went to a conference in Massachusetts in Boston. This was in the November I guess November of 1993, and conference was with a guy by the name of Dick Daynard, who had his own, what he calls the Tobacco Products Liability Project out of Boston University. He put this conference on, and he did it for years, year after year after year, but nothing ever happened because nobody had prevailed against the tobacco companies. So I met with him, and he said, Charles, if you're interested, there's this guy, there's a paralegal that works for Brandon Williamson in, in Kentucky that I met with. And he has claims to have all these documents that show how the Brandon Williamson and the other tobacco companies knew that a cigarette smoking causes cancer, how it's addictive, how they've covered it up, how they market to kids. He has this Trevor's treasure trove of documents that is basically stolen. Yeah, I was going to, and I hate to, I hate to interrupt you on this, but I think it's kind of important that the basically y'all kind of got this insider person that that basically stole these documents. But it was called, it was literally titled "Intent to Deceive," like the entire, and it was created by. 
wasn't it the defendants of the tobacco companies or the the tobacco companies themselves? Yeah, the tobacco companies themselves. These were all documents that clearly demonstrated that they were deceiving the public, that they knew that cigarettes caused cancer. They knew that um, they were very addictive, that the, you know, a cigarette was just a, basically a drug delivery device delivering nicotine, very powerful, uh, addictive, you know, chemical drug. And so it was all recognized in the forties and fifties that this was going on and they wrote it all down in their, you know, research projects. So this paralegal for this company in Louisville, uh, Brandon Williams, took the documents and at night he would stuff them in his pants and take them to the local. Uh, Stop. Yeah, he did. He did. Merrill Williams. Yeah, you actually uh, ended up fi- figuring out who that was, right? Yeah. You were tasked Merrill with Williams. that. Yeah. He took those documents home with him at night, took them to the local copying service, had them copied, and then would take them back to the office give them back, but he would have retained the copy. He would do this, you know, over and over and over again until he had I just thousands of documents that he had a huge file of documents that talked about how the cigarette companies were, were deceiving the public. So he went to this dictator who is this person in, in running this project in Boston. He said, I've got all this. And Daynard said, well, you've stolen these. You're going to be criminally liable. I don't know what to do with them. Yeah. So he tells me about it. And so I go back and report back to Ron and Mike Moore, the attorney general with, uh, and, and Dick Scruggs about these, this guy, Merrill Williams. And they're all intrigued. They said, we can't let this guy just hang out there. We got to do something about it. And Mike Moore, who is the attorney general of the state of Mississippi says, I am the chief law enforcement officer of the state. I can declare this guy to be a whistleblower. I'm going to take these documents and take them to Congress. And that's exactly what he did. He took all this box of documents, took them to Congress, and revealed all of them in a legislative hearing. And so they were out there to be seen by everybody. So ultimately, that's what happened with those. And so this is huge. This is on the front page of the New York Times we're talking 1994 now where all of this is out there about how tobacco companies deceive the public. So then there were legislating, you know, the congressman got all upset about this all, you know, so they called them in. And if you remember all the heads of the tobacco companies were put under oath and asked whether or not cigarette smoking, is it addictive? And they all denied it. You remember that where they say, no, it's, so that was really the start. It became such a very public campaign against the tobacco companies at that point. Time. But then ultimately, so you guys go, mm-hmm. you get all these different states. They're all come together to essentially to sue. You know, the government is now suing. But y'all are helping. Right. You know, you're, you're part of it. Yeah, we're private attorney generals at this point. Yeah, yeah. Private attorney generals working with attorney generals to sue the tobacco companies who are now scared enough that they've joined all together to defend themselves. And ultimately, I guess, getting back to what Todd asked, how did that culminate? Like, you know, it went to trial and then there was, it ended up being a verdict and ultimately a master settlement. So could you kind of explain what, what that is and what happened? Okay. All right. So the 
cases did start going to trial. Florida was the first case that was going to trial. And we had enough evidence at that point in time that the tobacco companies realized that this was not going to be a good result. So they settled the case. They settled Florida individually. Okay. For, I can't remember. It was like $15 million or something like that. And then this is before the master settlement agreement. And then there was another case. There was Texas that was going to trial and then ended up settling individually. Mississippi started going to trial. It settled individually. And then they all started, the, the entire group of cases, all the states, their trials were looming. And at that point in time, the tobacco company said, this is enough. We are going to just settle all of this. So at that point, that's when the, there were discussions about you know, a global settlement of all the cases that resulted in the master settlement agreement, which the master settlement agreement is really just the settlement of all of the state's cases against the tobacco companies. And that happened in 1998. And that was about, it was over $200 billion. $240 billion. It was the largest settlement, largest settlement of any tort law, tort case. Ever. Civil case, ever. Yeah, 200, probably more than... You know, any other case until now, I mean, you know, the opioids may settle for something in the same range, but they, they haven't settled yet. So the largest settlement in the history of uh, civil litigation. <laughs> lots of boats. We went on lots of boats. And there were multiple boats. You know, yes, those become that, less the money become that came from. The one where y'all wrote it down. I mean, that's yeah. like, you spoke yeah. into existence. I'm, I'd love to find that piece of paper now that, you know, we signed in 1990 because Ron would like to, like, get our signatures on things on that piece of paper that said we were going to sue the tobacco companies. That would be a, that would that be would interesting. Be an interesting thing to find. Yeah, For well, sure. Yeah. Well, you know, Ron was kind of notoriously upset that y'all didn't necessarily what he considered win, quote unquote, because the jury and these a lot of these jury trials would find oh, well, there's not enough evidence or there'll be one person that kind of hold held out or they would, they would bring up that kind of assumption of risk thing. But so you didn't win necessarily, but you got a 200, $240 billion settlement. Um, that money was then supposed to be used to compensate states for healthcare spending, educate the public and children about the risks of tobacco products. Did you share that sentiment with him that you feel like that they got away with it by not being found, like held guilty by jurors? No, I, I felt like the, the, the settlement was affirmation of the fact that they admitted guilt. And ultimately, after that, there have been verdicts against tobacco companies for billions of dollars, you know, you know, in individual lawsuits. It's the whole personal liability, assumption of the risk, contributory negligence sort of went by the wayside after the settlement because the public realized that the, the companies had been deceiving the public for so long that that if you sued, you know, on behalf of an individual, that you could still get a, you know, a large verdict. But I think the I think that the settlement itself like I said, was an indication by the tobacco companies that they realized what they had done was wrong. And actually, after the settlement, they, 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 if you look at their websites now, they admit that cigarette smoking causes cancer, it's addictive, and you shouldn't do it, and don't do it. They still sell cigarettes. 
Yeah. But, you know, now what they're doing is they're going into um, other alternative products, you know, vaping, that kind of thing. That's, you know, delivery of nicotine without the carcinogens that go along with it. The amount of time you said it was about five to six years by the time this, how long it took to settle this was about five or six right. years. So did you have any idea during the trials, how much it would impact everyone in a positive way and, and, and how it would ultimately change the United States as a whole with having the labels on the side of cigarette thing? You know, did you, did you, and did you fully appreciate the difference that you and your firm made? I mean, you really, really made a huge impact. So me personally, I didn't understand. I did not appreciate what, what the impact would be. I just, when you're living it, you just don't think about that. Now in retrospect, I see what a, you know, a big deal it was, how it changed people's attitudes about cigarette smoking. At one point among men and you know, like this is the 1950s, 55% of adult men smoke cigarettes. Now it's down to less than 20%, like 15% among all people. And so it's reduced the amount of cigarette smoking by a phenomenal amount. So I think that that has had a great impact. And then the, you know, the situation where people don't smoke in public, side stream smoke, environmental tobacco smoke has now been recognized as been a, a cause of disease. So that's all been limited to the point where smoking is not, I mean, it's still there. Uh, people still smoke and, you know, sorry that they still do that, but it's less than it was, you know, it just, it just, I won't say eradicated it, but it limited it to the point where it is not the biggest public health issue now that exists. I can't help. And I'm sure other people have made this comparison. It just <clears throat> with the, the, the whistleblower from PG and E that with the Aaron Brockovich stuff, there's, it's just so many parallels that that guy hadn't, hadn't have stolen those documents they wouldn't have been held accountable for, for all the, the water being contaminated. And it's so yeah. sort of the same thing about if the guy had stolen the documents that people wouldn't have maybe, I don't know oh. if it would have been, been such a huge deal if, if he hadn't have been the whistleblower. Well, and there were others as well. Now the most famous one, of course, is Jeff Wygand. And we were just oh. going to have to ask that the, the, the yeah. famous yeah. T- the movie, the insider, the insider. Okay. So Jeff Wygand, great guy, a scientist for Brown, also for Brandon Williamson, had gone to realize that life experience, this is not what I'm doing. This is, this is terrible what I'm doing. So at some point in time, he goes and calls this guy, Lowell Bergman, who is an executive producer for 60 Minutes, and says, you know, I've got all this information. I've got these documents. And let me tell you what Brandon Williamson is doing. They are researching a safer cigarette but they have deep sixed it. They're not going to, because if you make a safer cigarette, it implies that the, uh, your other cigarettes are dangerous. <laughs> and they're marketing kind kids, of tells on yourself, yeah. They're marketing to children and they're making, they're adding. It was a big thing, know, by the way. Todd just made a face, but that was a big thing. That, w- that was part of all of this was they were marketing to children. And they're like Joe Camel was a character mm-hmm. made to market to children. They're marketing to children. And they are making nicotine more addictive. They're adding ammonia to nicotine to make basically crack nicotine. So like if you have crack cocaine, you've got crack nicotine. So the ammonia freebasing, the basing the uh, 
the nicotine makes it more bioavailable, more, you know, so when you, when you absorb the nicotine, it's going to go straight to your head, whatever. That's that, that's what they're doing. They're, they're researching how to make nicotine more addictive. So Jeff Wigand calls Bergman, who is with 60 Minutes, and somehow Ron and Lowell Bergman get on the phone together. And this is, again, a, during a, this is a trial we were in in Euros. Ron is more obsessed with getting Jeff Wigand to become a witness against the tobacco companies as he, than he is in trying this asbestos case. So I'm sort of like drawn into this that, okay, Charles, your job is to get Jeff Wigan from Kentucky and to come to New Orleans to meet with us so that we can use him as a witness in the, in the, in the tobacco litigation. So I get on the phone with Wigan and arrange for him to be flown by Ron's, our, the firm's private jet. We fly him into New Orleans. We meet with him and he sort of reluctantly agrees to become a a witness in the tobacco litigation. I mean, he had agreed that he was going to expose the tobacco companies and actually go before Congress, but becoming a witness is another story. That way that you become a target by the, the, the tobacco companies because then you expose yourself. You're going to be subject to ridicule. Your whole life is going to be opened up, but he, he agreed to do it. So we meet with uh, Jeff and he agrees to become a witness. And once the trial is over with, it was in my job to be basically the handler for Jeff Wigand. So I am like in Washington, D.C., where he is being sub subjected to these multiple depositions. And it was just day after day after day of them grilling him on every detail of his life. And, and like, just for everybody else, it is a fascinating movie, The Insider, which is Jeff Wigand is played by Russell, Russell Crowe. And, and they don't really name a lot of the attorneys that are around him. Like there's nobody named Charles Patrick in the movie, but you know, you were the guy that was basically transporting well, him around and protecting him. Well, it wouldn't be that interesting, you know, to talk about Charles Patrick. You want to talk about Jeff Wigand. I will say this. If you ever met Jeff Wigand, and Laura, I think you did meet him. You might not, might not remember him. But if you met him and got to know him, Russell Crowe did a perfect job of portraying uh, Jeff Wigand. Perfect. I mean, he got all of his personality, everything, every part of his personality down, his speech, his actions, the way he handled himself. I just, it was a unbelievable that Russell Crowe was able to do that. Yeah, that's pretty but cool. If you watch, if you watch The Insider, you actually get to know Jeffrey Wigand. Who is, you know, when, like, as Todd was saying, you know, considered, I think, kind of a hero in this whole thing because without these whistleblowers then i mean imagine the fact that they all knew this in the 1950s and then it wasn't exposed till the 1990s well like, they made it fashionable in the 50s yeah everyone had a cigarette I yeah mean, it was it was like every major marketing everything was like you would see you, you know are doctors sexier. with sexier Oh my gosh. My, my doctor's office actually has like the, the old posters they had that were like cigarettes, make your life better. Cigarettes yeah, make yeah. you breathe easier, which is like, oh what y'all are like gaslighting us at this point. So 
to me, it's a fascinating thing. So I, I hope that everybody else kind of understands the, the insanity that this all was and, and kind of how much of an impact it, it kind of had on, well, our lives personally. But I do kind of want to shift gears because over the years, you know, I've obviously heard some stories from, from you and your colleagues about firm and, and what it was like. What, what kind of culture would you describe it as? And, and did you feel like it was that everybody else was also kind of in the same boat as you of feeling like you didn't really know what big a deal it was? Or was it kind of more partying and excitement and knowing that it was going to be a big deal? Well, I guess once the settlement was reached, we realized what a big deal yeah. it was. And we realized how much money was going to be generated, not only for the state's 250 40 billion dollars for the states but then the attorney's fees that were going to come out of that because there's as a separate that after the settlement was reached then it was a matter of trying to convince we had arbitration panels about what uh, the attorney's fees were going to be and that was a whole separate situation that that went on for another year the bottom line is there, there was a huge amount of money that went to the attorneys for what they did. And I, I, you know, I'm one of those attorneys and I agree that that was, I think, a, a just result, but it was a lot of money. It also changed a lot of people's lives. So Ness Motley in night in like the year 2000, there was a lot of like resentment bubbling up between the, the lawyers who did the tobacco litigation and the lawyers who did not do the tobacco litigation and how they were going to be compensated within the firm. And there was a lot of disagreement because of prosperity. I mean, because of all the money that was generated, people could do what they wanted to do. They could leave or retire. We had several lawyers who just left and retired. And in our case, Michael Brickman and I, Terry Richardson, Ed Westbrook, and other, firm, other members of the firm decided to leave what was in Ness Motley and go and form our own law firm because we were not happy with the direction of the firm going forward. So we, we formed our own law firm. And now, you know, it's all great. Now there's Motley Rice and there's now was Richards and Patrick, now Rogers, Patrick, because Terry's left the firm, but Rod, Tom Rogers, Patrick. And we have our own firm and we're just, you know, we get along fine together. But it was a time that was sort of disconcerting, you know, to leave another firm and join your, you know, form your own firm. And I imagine that wasn't, that wasn't easy because you were, you know, dealing with the people that you had just worked with for so long and been right. in the trenches it with. It was very difficult for me to leave Ron. Okay. So Ron, well, Ron was like, uh, he was my law partner. He was more than just a law partner. He was a brilliant, just a brilliant trial lawyer. He had a lot of, listen, Ron had a lot of problems personally. And one thing you always say about Ron, he was probably the best trial lawyer I've ever seen in a courtroom. He was a, just a, he had a brilliant legal mind whose mind was a step ahead of everyone else's. I mean, his, you know, the neurons fired faster in Ron's brain than in the rest of ours. You know, it's just, he was just such a quick, quick study. And I was, you know, I was sorry to leave him because he had meant so much to me in my life, but he had gotten to the point where it just seemed to be all about Ron and where he wanted to go was not where I wanted to go. And, and so we left and 
Terry and Michael and Ed, and all of us had that, that's, you know, the same feeling. He was quite a character. He really was. If anyone didn't know him, I mean, how would you describe him personally? Oh, gosh, that's hard to say. I mean, he's just quick-witted, funny to be around. He liked to drink, unfortunately, drank too much. But he was funny when he did it. I mean, he was a fun. He was just a fun guy. So he was a fun drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was not a bad drunk. No, he was. He was hilarious. He was, you know, like I say, quick witted. Always had something funny to say. He would always create a party. Everything around Ron was a party. After court, we would all go to the bar, and he would entertain us. He was quite the guy. So him being quite the guy was was ultimately. I can imagine he, he sounds like ultimately he was your friend. And so when you leave a friendship who also happens to be a, a colleague for so many years, I can imagine that that was super difficult and, and not what you guys ultimately wanted when you first started out, out together. No, it was very difficult. Once I left the firm, I felt it's like feelings of betrayal. I think Ron felt like at one point he said that I had stabbed him in the back. and But he knew why we left. I mean, he knew that. He knew he knew the, the reason for it, but uh, he was he was upset about it. And really, after we left, it was at that point we were talking about. Well, we were still at the firm, but considering leaving. But we we sat around and talking about suing Al Qaeda. And oh, I that forgot was about big, that. Oh my gosh! That was the next big thing: suing over nine eleven and suing. Saudi Arabia and the princes of Saudi Arabia and all that. We, uh, we all realized that that would, you know, suing the tobacco companies was a big enough deal. Suing oh, Saudi government. government for Al-Qaeda. And, you know, we knew we could get a, a verdict in absentia against a terrorist. We knew we could get a verdict against Osama bin Laden. But how do you collect on it? You know, yeah. where, where's your remedy? But what we understood was that the Saudi Arabian government, or at least the way their government is arranged, is a big, various collective of princes that have tons of money. They were financing Osama bin Laden basically to buy them off, you know, buy the terrorists off because they, they didn't want to be attacked themselves. So the money that went to finance what happened with 9-11 came from the Saudi Arabian government. At least that was the allegation. And so Ron, this was basically after we left, sued the Saudi Arabian government. And it's still in, you know, it's still in litigation today. I mean, it's what, 20, 22 years later, still happening. Well, so what? I think that's a really big kind of testament to what a big, you know, kind of character, big thinker. That, that Ron was and like, at, you know, at risk of this becoming a show about Ron, we'll obviously move on in a minute. But like, you know, ultimately a book was written about everything that y'all did about the cases and it was supposed to be focused pretty much on Ron Motley. And it was called who, who to me went by Mr. Buzz. So that was always funny, but it was supposed to be, you know, it it says on on the book how he led the charge against the Titans of tobacco. The book is called Civil Warriors, and you helped the author by providing some documents and stuff to to kind of help the the book get written. Did you ever read the book? And if you did, did you feel like it was accurate? And, And I also want to know if Ron was actually called the King of Torts in real life. Okay, well, I did read the book. Yeah, I read the book because that was Dan Seagart 
Dan came to Charleston and basically lived with Ron for a year or so, maybe two years, in preparation of writing the book. And uh, once the book was written, Ron was not happy with the book. Ron actually threatened to sue Dan for libel and slander because of the book. But, you know, I didn't think the book was... You know, there were some things I disagreed with, maybe some of the characterizations, but it's, you know, mostly true. What he observed was was right. It was the most flattering picture of Ron. Ron didn't like a, a book that was not, you know, he wanted he wanted to be flattered in the book, and it wasn't necessarily very flattering. Yeah. Did you feel like the parts that you were put in, that those were portrayed accurately? Or was, the, like, was Dan there? For most of this, or was yeah. this kind of? Oh, okay. he was there. He may. I might not recall everything that he wrote down, but I, I, I don't disagree with anything that he said. It's, I'm sure if he if he wrote it down, then it, it was it happened. Uh, there are so many, you know, instances of, of of things that went on during this period of time that uh, I don't recall everything. Like something that may have happened at a party or the celebration of a settlement or something like that. I don't recall the exact what may have happened at that time, but no, I think it was, I think it was an accurate depiction of what went on. You know, so far the parts I've gotten all the way through it, but I will tell people out there that it, if you want a good riveting, it, it almost it reads like a John Grisham novel, but it's, it, so it's, it's entertaining, but it's also can give you kind of a more full picture of the whole process that everybody went through to, yeah, to get yeah. that settlement, which is, you civil know, warriors, civil, civil warriors. warriors. Yeah. Yeah, well, this Dan Zegart would be very happy to know that we're promoting Civil Warriors, the book. Dan, give us pod. a call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll I would like to talk to Dan. Dan, Dan yeah. it's been a long time since I've talked to Dan. So the King of Tort, you know, John Grisham in, I can't remember, I guess it was the book. King. I guess it was the King, King of, of Torts. King of Torts, yeah. That was uh, the character in the King of Torts was based partly on Ron Motley. So John Grisham and Ron Motley were not close friends, but, you know, they knew each other. He and Dickie Scruggs actually did know each other very well, uh, or know each other very well. Dickie's still, Dickie's still alive. He's still there. Dickie's, Dickie's got, there. Dickie, there's a book about written about Dickie Scruggs called The uh, the Fall of the House of Zeus. Oh, I didn't uh, know that was about is, him. Yeah, that is about Dick Scruggs, and it it is really very well written. Great book about Dick Scruggs. And, you know, the problem with what happened with Dick is after the, after the master settlement agreement was reached and after all the tobacco money was received, Dickie continued to practice law and he got into a a falling out with one of his former law partners over attorney's fee. And the allegation was that this case had gone to court. The allegation was he was, you know, trying to bribe a judge to rule in his favor. And ultimately, Dick pled guilty to that and served time in jail in a federal prison and is now out of jail and is doing, lost his law license, but is doing well still. And he was disbarred. Yes, he was. And it may be that he got his law license back, but I don't, I don't know. But he moved from Pascagoula, Mississippi to Oxford. Mississippi, and that's where he and John Grisham got to know each well, other. Well, obviously, so you said in the beginning of the podcast, you have great kids, you have a great family. With all the tobacco litigation and going to Mississippi and going all over, and going to Washington and going all over the place, you were on the road a lot. 
And so with a wife, two small children at home, how did that affect you personally? And back then there were no, you know, there was no FaceTime, there was no Zoom, there was none of that. So how did that, how did you guys cope with that? Was it hard on the family? That was very hard on me. That was probably the, the, the hardest part of all of this, this whole journey was being me being away from the family for so long. I tried to come home on it every weekend, but that obviously didn't happen because sometimes I'd have a case out in California or Washington state, which would make it sort of impossible for me to come back just for a day or so. So I was away for a long time and I missed the kids. I miss being away from the family, from uh, the whole experience of Montessori school and everything that was going on with Beast Academy and Academic Magnet. That's where our kids went to school. Well, I do feel like you you did make, like I, I have vivid memories of like the weekends were dad time because you would make a very concerted effort to, to fly back every weekend. I did. Which I is, did. I made, had I to be costly. Well, it was, it was, it was hard on <laughs> me personally. So to get, so like I tried a lot of cases in Seattle, Washington. And so what I would do is get on the flight, a red eye on Friday afternoon and come back. And I would come back into Charleston on Saturday morning and then leave on a Sunday afternoon. And that was, I was much younger. I could deal with it at that point in time, but that was really hard to fly all night. And I can tell you the worst feeling that you could ever have is getting off of a plane at the Atlanta airport at five o'clock in the morning and no one else is around, but the person who is like vacuuming the carpets at the, at the terminal and you're sitting there. They, this is like, this is before I could get into our crown room or what, whatever. They yeah. call them. But, but, but you just sit on this bench and wait for your flight to leave at seven thirty in the morning to Charleston. And you were just out of your mind because you, you know, you hadn't slept or I hadn't slept at night. So, and then going and then dealing with, you know, being, having family time after not really sleeping and then being just totally out of it. And then, having to leave on a Sunday afternoon. Well, that's like intense. And I did not know that you were doing all that. I do, I do remember a lot of, or even now going through like photo albums, a lot of pictures of you laying down and, and Charlie and I harassing you. Like I would be like, wait, he'd be like, let's play doctor. And I'd be like, perfect. You lay there and I will take your, you know, your vitals. And I'm I'm sure that was maybe your way of getting some rest. I I love that. It was great. (laughs) You could do that. And you could take my temperature and I could, I could take a nap. You know? Well, I'd certainly have so, a whole yeah. new appreciation for your dedication to coming to see us. And I mean, we obviously missed you a lot, but in our minds too, I mean, mom was really good about being like, he's making a difference. This is a, this is a big deal. And, and so we, you know, I, I had nothing but fond memories at that time other and than she, and Dr. Patrick was, she was practicing at the time, right? Mm-hmm. She was, she was full time. Now she was full time until it, I think it was when Laura was about eight years old. And then Laura started hiding her pager because she didn't want Celeste <laughs> to go in to do call at night. Cause Celeste would have to go in and spend the night at the hospital, you know, like every other night. And so Laura didn't like it. So she would just hire her pager. She'd take care of that. <laughs> and at that point when, and when she started hiding her pager, that's when Celeste realized 
you know, maybe I ought to go part time. And that's what she did. She worked, she went and met with her boss and they worked out an agreement that she would not be on call as much as she used to be and be a part-time physician. Because Celeste at one point was the uh, head of the neonatal intensive care unit. I mean, she was a pretty big deal in the, at the medical university and heading that up. But that also meant that she was there at the medical university all of the time. And then he had to cover call at the at Roper and up at Trident. So she'd have to drive up to Trident Hospital, which is like 30 minutes away in the middle of the night. And that was that 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 drove her crazy. And then when Laura started hiding her pages, she realized that it was it was time to to not do that anymore. Yeah. Children will tell children will tell you. They yeah. Tell you in their own ways. I always thought that I, for whatever reason in my head, that story was more of like, oh, I just like approached mom one day and was like, you are working too much. I don't know why I imagined I was a tiny, you know, like adult, but really my way was to hide the pager. That is so funny. Yeah. Yeah. That, that was the, that was that that's what changed things. And so she was working less, but in the meantime, before that we had it, you know, we had a nanny. We had, uh, you know, someone who lived in with us. Well, and, uh, you'd have to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you'd have to. With you two working full time, you'd have yeah. to. It wasn't the most ideal situation. It was uh, a woman by the name of Shirley, who she had quite a personality. Interesting well. lady. Yeah. An interesting lady. Yeah. yeah. I always thought yeah. she was too strict because she would make me stare in the corner when I was bad and, and, my parents never made me do things that, like that. that. That's probably why I was hiding mom's pager. Yeah, well, <laughs> I was like, mom true. will stay and not make me stare at the wall. So, but I mean, yeah. you know, y'all obviously made it work and I'm eternally grateful for everything that y'all have given me in my life. And, and, and I, I think that that's a perfect kind of segue to, I think how many other people's lives you've also changed for the better because you are so heavily involved with philanthropy and charitable organizations. I mean, I'm just going to spout out just a couple trying to do United Way, Charleston Promise Neighborhood, Conservation Voters of South Carolina, Southern Environmental Law Center, American Lung Association, MUSE Foundation Board, Charleston Stage, Charleston Symphony Orchestra, and Gilliard. And as a family, we have our own foundation called the Patrick Family Foundation. So what drives you to give back so much with both time with both your time and money and and kind of how do you balance all those obligations when the law firm split up that was the one thing that uh, i wanted to impress on my law partners is that we needed to be a philanthropic group that we needed to give back and so my law partners have been very philanthropic as well but personally, I just felt like in, in a, if you ask me what one of, of my passions is social justice, I've always felt I grew up in, you know, upstate South Carolina and I saw a lot of saw the racial disparity. I saw people being taken advantage of. I've always felt uh, badly about you know my privileged life versus people that don't have it so well. And I felt like it was my duty to give back to people, especially with groups like, you know, the Charleston Promise neighborhood where people live in poverty in the Charleston area, you know, just like on the other side of Mount Pleasant where everybody's making tons of money and you've got people in the neck area of Charleston who are barely eking out an existence and kids who've never been, you know, even there, even though they live in Charleston, South Carolina, they've never been to the beach. It just is sad. 
So that has been something that I'm, you know, passionate about. And the United Way work as well that also deals with racial injustice. And just, you know, other things we've given back to the community because the community has given so much to us, we should give back. I was telling Laura that prior to this interview that this is a very full circle moment for me as a, as a human, but as an actor fully, because I grew up doing shows at Charleston Stage Company and every curtain speech, the founder, Julian Wiles would always say, you know, this, this performance is brought to you by you and your wife. And I remember backstage before every show, he would also say it to all of the actors. If you ever see them, please thank them because, you know, we would not be able to do that without them. Cause I was in Charleston stage when it was amazing stage and like all these other names before it was actually <laughs> Charleston stage. So back in the day before it was what it is today. And you, you giving to the arts and giving to Charleston stage in a lot of ways made it able for me to learn how to be an actor. And so that sort of has, I'm going to get emotional right now. That sort of has made me be able to have my career and have my outlet and fulfill my, my life's dreams because, and so I don't know if you ever know when you're giving to these arts organizations, the lives you are changing along the way, because I'm just one story, but you know, now I've, I've sort of been able to live out what I have sort of set forth for myself because I grew up in that theater and every performance I did was always because of your family. And so I don't know. I don't know how much Mike is going to keep in this. or how I know, but I mean, I wanted to give you the opportunity to, because he was so heartfelt about this. I'm very, very grateful. And it's, it's very strange because I heard your name and I had never met you growing up for maybe a decade of doing theater at Charleston stage. And you were always, everyone always spoke of you and Dr. Patrick in the highest regard. And now I understand why I'm meeting you, but um, it really, I just want you to know like your philanthropic efforts and your, your charitable efforts have not only, you know, helped the underprivileged, but it's also helped people that, I didn't have an outlet as, as a child, you know, and theater was my uh, escapism, but it was also my healer. And I think it in, in a lot of ways, it saved, saved my, my, my life. And so um, you've done good. <laughs> well, well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know, we, we, gosh, we love Charleston stage. We loved every performance. Julian is, so I got an email. Actually, Celeste got a phone call. Yesterday, day before yesterday, from Julian. Julian's retiring. Julian's he's 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 retiring. He actually Todd told me yeah. that the other day when we yeah. were talking so about this. What an incredible company he put together, and what a, a great outlet it is. It has been for 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 various actors and kids, you know, growing up in the theater and expressing themselves, and what you know, it was just fantastic and we were very excited to uh, support Charleston stage and what got y'all into supporting the arts as a whole kind of like exactly like the arts I am definitely taking this podcast as an opportunity to just brag on my parents a lot because I just can't say it enough they're you're just such amazing people but you know it's been said many times but I don't think it can be said enough like you and mom can be directly attributed to 
jump-starting the revitalization of King Street in Charleston. I mean, a place that had centrally in the 90s and eight and you know 2000, or I'd say more 90s, essentially kind of become a slum. And so what made you interested in preservation? And what have your feelings been throughout kind of the process of building Patrick Properties? which is our other company that's also owned by those, my yeah. For those of you listening, King Street is a really long oh, yeah, I guess that ongoing. Sense. Yeah. For people who aren't from Charleston, King Street is a really long street in, in the, in the central downtown Charleston, which is like, it's got, you know, shops and restaurants and it's kind of where everybody, everybody goes to, I don't know, be it's, it's historic. It's, but it's, there was there was a certain point what Laura's alluding to is that there was a certain point a few years ago where you got to a certain part of King Street and you just didn't walk any farther. Yeah. Like you just turned around yeah. and went right backwards. And now that it just keeps going. And, and yeah, yeah. And at that point, this was in the early 1990s. If you went certainly, certainly at night, but sometimes during the day, at the corner of King and Calhoun you know, where Marion Square is, you didn't walk any, you didn't walk north of that because that was a dangerous area to be in, especially in the evening. So, so this is sort of like, this goes back to, um, we had some friends, this Montessori school time, you know, with Laura and Charlie were in Montessori school. And we had a friend of ours who was a parent of kids at Montessori school. And I got to know him. He was a funny guy. And he wanted to, we had a little, business together and he wanted to make he wanted to make movies and it was it was sort of part serious part not so serious but when I was in a I was in a trial in New Orleans and he was more serious about it I guess than I was I was in a trial in New Orleans and I came back from the trial and realized that he had put a, a offer in to buy the American theater on King Street and that was like what? That was like a place where you didn't want to be. It had been closed for like 10 years. And, and for those of you who don't know what the American theater is in King Street, it was in the movie The Notebook. It is like Yeah, the, if you go to The, the Notebook, you can see... You can see the, mo- the, the theater. So I keep going, please. So, and anyway, we, we, we had a disagreement and the business was, was ended, but we still had the contract on the American theater. And I said, Celeste, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that this was going to happen. But what do you want to do? I'm so sorry to interrupt you again, but to, to make it clear that, yes, y'all had a business disagreement and it didn't end that well. But in that period of time, there was a virtual reality center in the American theater upstairs that I was particularly obsessed with and had many a birthday party at and yeah so well, i mean that was a- what happened okay so so i told celeste i said what do you want to do with it and i said we can keep it we can just put it back on the market or just walk away from it and lose our deposit or whatever and she said uh why don't we keep it we'll we'll, we'll renovate it and i said okay great wonderful so i went back to practice in law and she this was all celeste she and her dad who was a contractor renovated the American theater and we decided to make it back into a movie theater. We made, took the huge theater and made it into two, two separate theaters. And we had make it, made it, it was called the American cinema grill because we had, you, you could go watch a movie like a second run movie and have a, a burger or a beer or whatever glass of wine while you're watching the movie. And it did it did okay there for a little while. And then we had the upstairs, which was the virtual reality 
center that we had. Not exactly sure how we got into that, but that was the, the, the former yeah. partner. He got he was the one that that was his brainchild. But once he left, yeah. we kind of just kept it. So we had that, and and then DVDs came out, and so nobody nobody really wanted to go watch second run movies. They could see them at home. So we ended up we ended up uh, in, we we by that time we had built the restaurant, which was then known as Fish, and. We had bought the house next door to the William Macon house. So we got into the hospitality business. So we incorporated the American theater as part of a, as a hospitality venue with the, with the William Macon house. So we no longer showed films, but it's still the theater. I mean, you could still, you could still do that if you wanted to. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and I just, I like, you know, I'm also, again, slightly biased, but I will say that y'all did such a good job renovating and and preserving both the American theater, all of them, American theater, Lowndes Grove, they're gorgeous. Anybody wants to have the most beautiful wedding ever that there, any of those places are, are the place to be. And Charleston is such a huge wedding. The number one, it's the number one wedding. But it hasn't always been that way. And I, and I, I like to think that, that that was a big part of y'all's doing. I mean that that there weren't wasn't as much. Well, we got into we got into the historical renovation. Glenn Keyes, who is an architect that does historical renovations, was our architect, and he did an amazing job with all of the properties, including Lowndes Grove, and that was went through a, a, a renovation as well, which is not on King Street, but is up north of the Citadel on the Ashley River, and that was we did that. When we decided we were going to build a hotel in the back of our property on King Street, but that was that came at, at the time when the recession, the Great Recession, hit in two thousand eight, like two thousand nine. Yeah. So we pulled the plug on the on the hotel, but we decided that we would turn to another property that was Lowndes Grove, and then we renovated that, and that has worked out very well as part of the whole hospitality worked into our hospitality company with you can have a wedding at the you know, Lowndes Grove or you can have your party at the William Macon house or vice versa. So it's all, they've all worked well together. Yeah. So I was going to ask so, kind of what your, because I know that we've, y'all put so much time and, and effort into all this was just kind of wondering like how you felt when we kind of received some backlash from some people in the in the community, I mean, Hannah Raskin basically said that we were whitewashing history. Um, we got it kind of in some hot water when Lowndes Grove, because it had plantation in it uh, in the name, even though we weren't. It was never a working plantation, so it wasn't actually didn't even fall under the category of plantation. But we had to change the name essentially. How did you receive? all of that and and how have you kind of well, I, it, it hurt my feelings actually that people would consider us racist because we had a place that was named Lounge Grove Plantation which after some research and we actually got a, a story in the College of Charleston to do a history of Lounge Grove and you're right it was never a working plantation and plantation was attached to the name Lounge Grove sometime in the 20th century just as a marketing just for marketing purposes. It was never a plantation. I mean, it never, I mean, at some point in time, it had encompassed more property 
but it was never, it was a growth. They grow, grew oranges. It didn't, you know, oranges didn't grow well in Charleston. So it wasn't even a successful orange growth, but that's the reason why it was called growth. And it just, it, it, it bothered me that, that somebody would say, oh, you own a plantation, therefore somehow you're, you're racist. And, you know, it just, it, it bothered me. It bothered me. But I think we've gotten past that. I think, I, I think that uh, people don't consider that to be a, a bad thing. People, people like having their weddings at Lowndes Grove. It is also featured in the Netflix series, Outer Banks. Yeah. It's like the, they're filming again in June. They're actually doing it right now. Yeah. Yeah. And they've been wow. popping into the beer garden every so often. And as you know, we ended up, in a, you know, interviewing Colin Moss, who's the sheriff yeah. on there. I actually sure. went to dinner with him the other day. But yeah, I think there's a lot of good stuff coming out of it. And I, I, I personally felt very defensive for you guys when that stuff was said, because it's like, that's so not who you are. Like, I I don't think anybody, you know, a lot of people can look up at people that are, that have been successful, that have done these things and they kind of want to find, it seemingly want to find something wrong with what's going on there. And that's just so. It's it's cancel culture. Yeah. It's finest. Like you don't know anything about this family. You have no idea why they, why they bought that property. You have no idea what they've, what they have given their money to over the years, who they have supported, who's in their actual family, mm-hmm. you know, nothing about them. So, you know, shut up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it felt like it was appropriate for some places that maybe were kind of whatever they were saying, essentially that they were romanticizing plantations. And yes, of course, if there's like slave houses and stuff all around and and you're having weddings right next to it, that that is a little disconcerting. But I felt like with our, everything that y'all have done and everything you've given back to the community that, um, that I felt that criticism was unwarranted, but again, a little biased. Do people say the (laughs) same thing about Boone Hall? Yeah. Because I went there recently, went there for a, a tour. The tour guide was going around saying that the slaves, not all slaves, were were not happy. Okay. <laughs> she said she said that you know they they were very loyal. They didn't want to leave the property because oh, they, a lot of them were not educated and they wanted to stay. And they became friends. They became really close with the families and all this stuff. So I, it was just a little like, oh, okay, I mean, maybe that's what you're talking about. Where'd she go? That's what's kind of crazy is if we're totally a different, like Lounge Grove is yeah. so different from Boone Hall, yeah. Middleton, like they're, and, and, and in a way yeah. they, they've kind of tried to repair that by being educational, like trying to educate yeah. people. But especially Middleton. Middleton has done a really good they've job. They've done a, lot, a much better yeah, job. They've done a really good job. So, but the funny thing is, you know, in Lowndes Grove is never a working plantation, but, you know, there were still slaves at Lowndes Grove and the most famous slave there who bought his freedom was Denmark Vesey. And, uh, you know, one of the owners of the, one of the first owners of of Lowndes Grove was Captain Joseph Vesey, who met Denmark in St. Martin, brought him back to Charleston and... Somehow, you know, Denmark Vesey bought, he bought a lottery ticket. I don't know how you do this, but you bought a lottery ticket, you know, in the early 1800s, made so much money, won the lottery, took the lottery money and bought his, bought his freedom. And then 
became a very successful business person, uh, a, a freed slave in Charleston, until he was then arrested for allegedly plotting an insurrection, and then he was hanged in July of 1822. And the reason why I know this is because there'll be 100 years, or no, 200 years. Anyway, it will be the anniversary of his being uh, uh, killed or, or hanged in Charleston, and so the Gilliard is doing a big celebration of his life in mid-July, an event to celebrate the life of Denmark Vesey. But he lived in Lowndes Grove. And so this sort of like goes back to Outer Banks. So Outer Banks, if you follow the series at all, has Lowndes Grove being owned by a, a character called Denmark Tanny, yeah, which yeah. is based loosely on Denmark Vesey. The guy who wrote it, Jay Pate, who is the executive producer, the, the writer for Outer Banks, did not realize that Denmark Vesey actually lived at Lowndes Grove. It just happened to be that they were doing the filming there and this character was placed at Lowndes Grove. So, so, so it's like I saw him. He, he's a friend. I've gotten to know him and he was at the Library Society giving an election. I said, did you realize? that your character, Denmark Tanny, who's based on Denmark Vesey, did you know that Denmark Vesey lived at Lowndes Grove? He said, I have no idea. I had no idea. And so I said, well, you know, on the series, if you watch the series, there's a picture in the, what, what is, is the, the? Oh, yeah, yeah. Anybody? So that was Cameron's, yeah. yeah, yeah Ward Cameron. And Ward Cameron's, like, uh, little study, his, his office, there's a picture of Denmark Vesey with his picture uh, superimposed on the back of Lowndes Grove. Lowndes Grove is in the background. His characters or his faces on the front of it. So, so I said, yeah, it'd be really cool if I got a copy of that. Just to, you know, I don't you know. Well, the other day, well, the, other day the, the, the Jay, who is the guy who created Out of Banks, delivered to me the original painting of Denmark Tanny in Lowndes Grove. Oh, so wow. I need to... I need, I need to, to get, get framed. framed. Yeah, full circle. So I says, what, what are you going to do, do with that? I'll put it somewhere. For sure. Put it in your yeah. study. Well, you exactly. are, just from that, you know, everything you know about, you are a history buff. So that leads, we have a tradition on this show that is uh, we ask a question of the day. And so our question of the day for you today is, so if you could go back in time to any time and place in history, where would you go? You know, I, uh, you know, and, and I have given no thought to, just to, to ask that question to this, but I would like to go back to Philadelphia when they were framing the Constitution. I would like to be with those guys, with Madison and the other writers of the United States Constitution, because there's been so much, been so much debate recently about what did they mean. And I like to ask them, what do you mean by this? You know, you know, is this constitutional or not constitutional? And what do you envision the rest of America to be? You know, like Ben Franklin, what do you think? I mean, is it is is this uh, like uh, what are your thoughts? On... That will, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd like to I'd like to get there. I'd like to be a fly on the wall when that was being done, just to just because of what is going on today. And I'm worried now based on our state of our politics, that we're going to lose our democracy. I really do worry about that. And I'm, I'm worried that sometimes that people go back and say, well, the, it's in the Constitution that says this or it doesn't say this. And it's like, 
you know, there's so many, th there's so many rights that we think that are in the Constitution that are not exactly in the Constitution. You know, the right to vote is not in the, stated in the Constitution, yeah. but we think it is a basic right. So to answer your question, I would like to go back to, to when the, the, our country was first being formed. Well, I think that was a very apt answer. Well, just knowing you in general, I feel like we could do an entire podcast on just like historical facts and stories because, you know, you studied, you majored in history and, and always learning and always trying to get to the, the bottom of things. So uh, I think that's an amazing answer. When I got out of college, I never intended to become a lawyer. Okay, I wanted to become a history professor. I do remember you and saying my, that. My, my, and my, my goal was to go to, to get a doctoral degree. And I was thinking about going to University of Wisconsin to get my doctorate and, and become a history professor. But my academic advisor at Furman told me, he said, Charles, there are like a thousand people that have doctoral degrees in history that are driving cabs around in New York City right now. You would be much better off economically if you went to law school. And I said, okay, if you insist, I'll go to law school. So that's what I did as I went to law school. You need to find out who that guy was and thank him because we wouldn't have a lot of the things that we have now if it weren't for that. Yeah, well, I know the guy's, the guy's name is John Block. He's a history professor at Furman. He's retired now. Great guy. And that's the advice he gave me was Charles yeah, you need to pass on becoming a history professor and go into law. Yeah, Amazing. he he had that covered. So you wanted you to go do bigger <laughs> and better things. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on today. And we're definitely going to so let you have the rest of your afternoon back. But, you know, I, I, this was very special for me. And I know it was special for Todd because he really has been kind of waiting for the opportunity to I, we, we have interviewed you know celebs and whatever this interview i feel like i was interviewing i don't know the president of the united states I've, for me it's a very big deal and i i haven't been nervous at any of the other yeah this yesterday laura well, i haven't been nervous today i was i'm, I'm sweating right now. oh my gosh you're I'm, so funny i am but <laughs> but no, I mean this is a, this was a big deal for both of us. So we really appreciate you doing this. Thank you so much. Well, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed it, and it's like it was great just to relive all these experiences and to be able to talk to both of you, and especially to Laura, because this is a conversation I'm not sure if we've really ever had. Yeah, I mean, definitely, you filled in a lot of holes, and I feel like also created more questions. So, <laughs> yeah, we'll have to do part two. Exactly. All right. Well, I love okay. you, and I love you too. I hope you have a wonderful <laughs> rest of your day. Well, your daddy did good. Yeah, well, you certainly, you know, told him that. And that's awesome. I'm so, gl I'm so glad you got a chance to kind of talk to him about how much he's kind of impacted your life. I mean, he's impacted my life, but he's impacted so many people's lives that he, he and your mom, honestly, they, I don't think they, I don't know if they have, I don't know if they know or they have any idea that, cause it's not just the giving to the organization. It's the, it's the smaller moments that happen. It's a ripple effect. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and first of all, he's so brilliant and he's so, he's so, <laughs> I think the main takeaway was that he, it was normal for him to work that hard. 
it was yeah. normal for him to to want to seek that kind of justice. I mean, he said social injustice is, you know, and if somebody's coming after the people with this stick they're going to put in their mouth that gives them cancer, yeah. he's going to do something about it. And I, I think that it's the whole thing. I mean, how did you feel interviewing your dad? Was it weird? I mean, it was a little bit weird only because I felt like I, all I wanted to do was be like, oh, and tell them about this and tell them about that because I hold him in such high regard for for those exact reasons the the fact like that he imparted on me like the the social justice aspect which can sometimes get us in trouble like sometimes even you know him and I will get like very we're very similar like him my my dad and I and and my mom and I are too but I kind of just kind of followed more in my dad's footsteps especially like being an attorney myself but it's like he and I can kind of get laser focused on these things that are like, this is really important. I'm going to, you know, like he's the first person that's going to not necessarily correct somebody that's wrong, but like there's somebody spouting off on social media about something crazy. He is like the voice of reason that comes in and is like, you know, I'm not trying to stir anything up, but just want to let you know, historically, this is how this happened. And, and it, you know, I know I get that from him. And it's how mm-hmm. I felt when kind of all this stuff came out about the plantations. Like, I honestly, I very much understand the sentiment that everybody was talking about, about we do not want to romanticize slavery at all or, or plantations. But it was like, no. historically, that plantation was not a plantation. And, and now in no form is it like that. The rest of the plantation ended up becoming Hampton Park, which is massive. And also Wagner Terrace, which people from Charleston will know what I'm talking about. But if you're not, it's essentially an entire neighborhood of downtown Charleston. So to say that that's the same as something else, it, it, it angered me. And it, on their behalf, I felt like this need to defend. And, and that's how, you know, he is about everything. Like anybody. He, gets, he, he did say it hurt his feelings because yeah. he, he's not like that. I'd say they're like the least racist, the least classist, if you will. Like those, they're so not that way. And well, he grew he grew up, you know, with a town of twenty three hundred people, yeah. very small town, you know, kind of rural rural upbringing, and education is what got him to where he is today. And he had the impetus to educate himself mm-hmm. on, you know, and he he even touched on. He's like, you know, I know I have privilege. And yeah. so I want It's always good to hear a white man say that, you know, and that's why I love my dad a white so much. Straight man. <laughs> yeah, a white straight man too. Yeah. <laughs> too, you know, because the fact that he knows that he has privilege, I think that if if other men are listening to this, they can and because there are some men that are like, I don't have any I don't Yeah. Have any, well, I didn't do anything. I'm not a part of the problem. Oh god, it's just it's so exhausting. I know it's, it's exhausting. So, it's and exhausting. that's I will say that's my favorite thing when I go over to my parents' house. One, I know I can just be myself, which I think most people feel, you know, kind of with their parents. But I also know that I'm like with my people, like that I can talk about things like that and like not hear the devil's advocate. Well, I wasn't a slave owner. Like, why do I have to? And they are so understanding and giving and and empathetic. And it's it's a real it's. It is refreshing this day and age when you are all you see are, you know, in kind of the wake of Trump and everything is this divide that they are all about acceptance. And the thing that was fascinating about the interview, I mean, for the listeners, I'm sure they were like fascinated about the 
actual lawsuit in the Supreme Court. And, you know, when you take on the tobacco industry yeah. and the fact that, you know, about the guy putting the papers in his pants. Yeah, that's you know, nuts. I did not know about that. It's just so like... You think it, you know, I'm shocked that it hasn't been made into a film or yeah. something like. Well, I know what our next project is. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it's just, it's pretty remarkable that on a boat, these guys yeah. got together and Ron, it was Ron, right? Yeah. Ron Ron, said, yeah. You know, I want you to sign all of this. We're going to go after them. Yeah. And to, 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 to it's just, just fascinating. It and, was actually. We're so committed. You know? Yeah. It was really nice, too, to kind of hear. I've never heard his, never heard him be that open about kind of his relationship with Ron either. And I don't know if he really has had an opportunity to kind of grieve that loss, like not just from his death, but also from the divorce of the firm. Well, that's what I tried to, to, to say, you know, this was your friend. Yeah. yeah he, he, he didn't. Well, you knew I, I wasn't going to push that. So thank you. <laughs> right. Well, I don't, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. I, if, from what he was saying, he was talking about him as a friend, not as a business. Yeah. Partner. He was talking about him as a friend. Yeah. And so when anyone loses a friend, you know, or, or breaks away, you know, if you're in a business relationship and you break away and you're friends and you're that close as they seem to be, I mean, years and years and years and years of working together and fighting yeah. for the same goals. And they were so friends they until he died. I mean, they definitely, they, they did not, they harbor yeah they didn't harbor any resentment towards each other i think it was more that i mean that my dad mentioned that ron was like oh you stabbed me in the back but ron could also say any number of things and not necessarily just in the moment didn't have a big filter but he you know they 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 saw the value in each other and and they were kind of the yin and yang with each other because he was ron was the was the idea guy my dad was kind of the the, the implementer and, right. and Ron was the one that was kind of like, I'm throwing this out there. And my dad would kind of be like, well, let's also consider, you know, maybe well, this or that. Just to recap, who was the guy that ran his mouth? Yeah. Ron Motley went to like up to a, a thing. It was Ron. Yeah, it was Ron. Okay, he went I up to it was somebody else. It was the, there was the other guy that was pissed. It was the guy that the attorney general oh. of Mississippi was pissed because they, they were going to be the first ones to right. do this. And then he went up to, and that's what I'm saying is he doesn't have much of a filter. He didn't have much of a filter. <laughs> so that they would get himself in trouble a lot. And so my dad was right. kind of the one to scoop him out of trouble when that happened. Right. So they were a right. little bit of like a, a tag team kind of situation. And I well, think that's something special. It was hard to get him to talk about, you know, he, the one things that I saw where he sort of opened up about his own trauma was the fact that it was really hard on him leaving you kids yeah. and his wife and everybody fighting for this greater good. Yeah. But while he was doing that, he was giving his family, you know, quote unquote, a better life. Yeah. And he was helping the nation find out about cigarettes. Yeah. Uh, the causes. So you kind of have to go. The sacrifice you made, you personally, Laura, and your brother and your mother, the sacrifices they made for him to be able to go and do that, the sacrifices your mother made to, to you know, deliver all these babies and to, you know, ch you know help out. It, it, Deal with her daughter hiding her pager. That, <laughs> it was news to me, so honestly. Happy. I did not realize. I, I guess I had this fairy tale, fairy tale kind of thing in my head where I was just like, had this talk with my mom. Like, I think it's time we slow down. And spend some more time with me because that's how my that's daughter I, does it. That's, well, that's what adult Laura would do. Yes. Child, yeah. No. Child Laura's yeah. like, mm, I'm going to take well, care what, of this. What a fascinating interview. We will have him back on anytime he wants to come on. I know. And, I love um, it. 
I wish I want to get the whole fam on. They're all interesting, (laughs) but you know, they're not all as interested in, in blabbering as much as we are and my dad. So, well, I guess that leads us to us answering the question of the day. I don't think anything I say is going to be as profound as my dad, but what time in history, if you could go back place in time, would you like to go back to? I know I'm supposed to think about this. I know I've just, Um, I'm trying to think about it, but I, I probably would go back to, I would pro- I would love to go back to <laughs> ancient Greece. Oh my gosh. Where they were where they were starting theater. Ah. And because there was, you know, what the Greek where the Greek yeah. chorus came from and all that. I would love to go back and see because everybody just played every part. Like yeah. It didn't it didn't matter. And I think that that would have been interesting to see how they were coming up with things back then. Obviously when I, I'd have to have like you know, I have to understand the language. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's assume you have like a little earpiece in your ear. It's like a a babble thing. And so, yeah, you know what's going on. It's not like you're lost. I mean, exactly. That would be, that would be fascinating. That would be. Or or going back to like where they had these, Greece, where there was like, because I went, I went there and visited the ruins of, of, of Ephesus and, um, I found it so fascinating, but yeah, I'd probably go back to Greece. I, and, you know, that would be my, like, go-to because I was obsessed with Greece and, and like, Roman history when I was in middle yeah. school. But I can't really get over the lack of um, air conditioning or, I mean, they did have a form of plumbing in, in a way, but there was still, like, feces in, in the streets. I still think that would be fascinating. I would love, though, if I, I mean, honestly, because I don't really want to go backwards because of the lack of air conditioning, I would love to go back to like when at some point human. Well, we caveat this for people who don't know that you live, it, if you've never been to Charleston, it is oppressively hot. It's so, it's so hot. Yeah. I guess if, yeah, I guess if I went back to to Greece in like the fall. That would be amazing. <laughs> but no, it is really hot. And yes, I have an obsession with air conditioning and, and wanting to be cold. And I think that's because we, we're we a very Scotch-Irish family. So I'm, that's my- Where my, would you go? Where would I think go? I would go though, I think to like, like kind of like proto- uh, to like time, like when, when Neanderthals and like humans like would cross paths with each other. And see, oh like, because, like, you know, that we all from like 23andMe now, we know that there was some like crossbreeding. I want to see the first time a Neanderthal met a human and how that went down. Oh, <laughs> I think that would be crazy. God. I mean, I don't know. I'm just interested in stuff like that. So, and science, science. I love science. science. I do. I really am very You're interested in that. I am a nerd. I'm a nerd. I don't know if y'all have noticed from all of the things that I say on here, I'm a nerd. But this was an amazing all-around discussion. So I'm just, you know, grateful for uh, – we wouldn't be here doing this if it weren't for my dad. So, you know, we have him to thank. We have him to thank for Todd's amazing voice and <laughs> and his illustrious career of and yeah, that he is I mean, now they- auditioning for things again. So, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, Charles Patrick, thank you. Thank you, Patrick. T- Charles Patrick. Yeah, thank the Patrick. Patrick and Mr. all Patrick. the Patricks. You know, well, not all of them. Him, him in particular. But, anyways, always wonderful to see you, and I hope you, you have too. a wonderful afternoon. Okay. Too, bye. bye.